0: To the Word of God. We, uh, if, if you're visiting, my name is Peter. I was gone last week. I, I serve as the lead pastor. Last week, we were, I was with our Every Nation team in Monterrey, Mexico. Uh, many of you all know that we're part of a, a group of churches and campus ministries called Every Nation. Uh, we're super into church planning, campus ministry, and world missions. And uh, last week I got to do like all three of those things all at once as we helped our campus chapter, our Every Nation campus chapter in uh, the, the University Autónoma de, de, de Monterrey, Nuevo León. It's uh, 120,000 students in this one state school. Um, uh, this is Pastor Israel. I'm translating for him. And uh, it's really cool to see... Our every nation churches that are doing the same thing in another place to win young people and to train up the people of God to be dangerous to the enemy. Amen? Uh, If you want to help in that danger, I want to just encourage you again, you can advance the kingdom of God and eat Uncle Peter's signature salted chocolate shortbread cookies and uh, donate your love and your taste buds to our table in the back. It'll help our seven people going to Baja. So I want to carry on in week three of our sermon series, Why We Gather. It's important to understand why we do this according to what God's will is, why we come together on Sunday, and not just according to our intentions and if it makes us feel better or whatever on a Sunday morning. Why does the church gather? If you're taking notes, this message is entitled, The Habit of Growing Together. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We stand to honor God's word. I'm going to read from the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. And this is a description of the very first days of the early church. Starting with verse 42 of chapter 2 of Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Verse 43, And awe, or fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond my thoughts or ideas. Jesus, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're always full of holiness and joy and purity, security. We we are not. We're up and down. We are unstable. Uh, We need you to free us from our habits that cause us to be one way and then the next and up and down and small. We need you to help us to develop holy habits of growing in you and to be enlarged by who you are growing in your image, taking upon ourselves your joy, your holiness, your purity, your aggressiveness to love others. Lord, I ask that you would make us like you in this moment that we gather together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. A little review leading up to this passage we just read. Jesus was with his disciples for over a three year period. And in that time, he had proven with signs and wonders and very real, verifiable miracles. And he had proven simply by the overwhelmingly attractive nature of his beautiful and pure personality he had proven that he is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, he's the Savior of the world. And so naturally, there was a lot of these, these young kids, Jewish kids, that had walked with Jesus for years, that were ready for him, quite frankly, to take over the world. Some of them had already, you know, kind of done their own version of a Kickstarter campaign to invest in, you know, Jesus the Emperor figurines and t-shirts and stuff like that. They were ready for a little coup for him to take over the Romans. That's how they thought it would go. But the coup never really came. You see, Jesus was planning to save the world in a totally different way, and so many of his disciples missed it. His plan was to save the world by bringing life literally from the dead by dying himself. Jesus is the only one who never really had to die. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and he had no sin in him, no sin that would lead to death. The wages of sin Is death. He didn't have to die, but he chose to die to pay the exact penalty of what we earned justly by our sin, impurity, unrighteousness. The righteous died for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. When he began this transaction of his life for our death, it wasn't fair, it was mercy. We don't want fair. We can receive mercy, though. His act of dying for us to save the world was strange. It was missed so often by the the, the early disciples. They didn't quite have that paradigm in their mind, that he would die, that he would perform an act of gruesome, toilsome, excruciating pain to enact redemption for us. And so I think the first Good Friday... Felt anything but good for these disciples. And Saturday came. Still didn't feel so good to them. But then Sunday morning came. Jesus rose from the dead, and he's very, really alive right now. And the tomb is still empty. And Jesus, from that Sunday onward, began a paradigm shift in his people about just how he would save the world and really how we would grow together to enact his redemption plan and carry it through to completion in all the world. And I said that he began a paradigm shift because there's still a processing that needs to happen in us. In fact, after walking with Jesus for 40 days, and him and explaining to them, all right, it's not going to go like this. Here's how it's going to go. A lot of these dudes did not get it still. I mean, some of them still wouldn't leave the political coup thing alone. Like, they wouldn't leave it alone. Like, your super political uncle who trolls your Facebook posts, like, they would not leave this thing alone. And Jesus was was really merciful and patient with them anyway. He said, look, no, 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 don't, we're not going to take over the world like this, but you're going to wait in Jerusalem until power comes. Jesus explained the inside out, filling of the Holy Spirit, which would dominate the world through love and sacrifice, that he would form a people for himself, and so they waited, and on Pentecost, power came. In church, we still gather together, we still wait on him, and power still comes and let me just tell you, the paradigm shift that started with them still needs to continue to p- take place in us. With what church is all about, what life is all about, why you have breath in your lungs, why we have food on our table, why we have friendships and relationships, and just what God's intention is. We need a paradigm shift too. God's plan to, to, to redeem the world is a profound Plan that involves a lot of covert operatives that grow in him. It involves the power of the Holy Spirit and it also involves an ancient secret, namely the habit of growing together. There's a power in this. Verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. The prayers of the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to break it. You see what I'm doing here. They were devoting themselves. And what was the result of this lifestyle that they lived day after day? Verse 43, awe came upon every soul. I actually looked that up and it it means every soul. Like everyone who was there, we know at least 3,000 people were experiencing a very real awe. So so they were starting to be less filled with worry or anxiety for whatever they were filled with the day before. They were experiencing real awe. And then it says, signs and wonders were being performed. I mean, for me, it would be enough to just see one little, you know, miracle. But it says, many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. The chapter ends by saying that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How many of us desire to be a part of the move of God, a historical part of a move, movement of God that's marked by miracles and signs and wonders, that's marked by true togetherness, not perfunctory togetherness, like, man, if I have time for you, we'll see. But a true, inextricable, inseparable togetherness. A move of God that affects this sort of power. I hope, I hope all of us desire that. But this, verse 43, all came upon every soul. Wonders and signs were being done. That's a fruit of verse 42, I want to slow down and start with the very first words of this passage and see if you can see, if the Holy Spirit helps you to see what he's helping me to see. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. Can everyone say devoted? devoted. Y'all can say it with a little more volume, that devoted that sounded like faith to me. I don't know about you. I remember uh, Pastor Ray, uh, pastor before we planted this church, my pastor up in Austin, he said, the word devoted means de-voted. He would say, you have to, in a, in a society where democracy is so in our brains, soaked into our habits and thinking, that you have to de-vote. You have to relinquish your right to vote on things, he used to say. Jesus is not an elected president. Not, he, he's not God if you make him your personal Lord and Savior. He is God. He has been God before you, and he'll be God after you. And the only choice that you have in it is whether, whether or not you will devote yourself to his headship and his lordship. So we devote ourselves, he's after our hearts. In fact, this word devotion that's translated into English, I love the word devotion. The word devotion talks about uh, the the very real uh, weighing of our heart. You know, what you're truly devoted to is what you really, truly love. And, And devotion plays itself out by the various rhythms and rituals and habits of our lives. What you're really devoted to will be man- manifest in how you live your life. You can say, I love God, but your love and devotion for whatever the object of your devotion is will be revealed in one way or another by your life and how you live. It says they devoted themselves to these things. In fact, this, this, this word habit that I'm using today, I think is a very... Uh, helpful word in how we unpack what the original Greek word for devoted was. Uh, the, the Greek word that is used in the original language when the book of Acts was written is proskireteia, which means constant or adhering. Constant or adhering. They were constant. They were habitual in their getting together, hearing the teaching, Having real sharing with one another and real fellowship. We'll explain what that is. Uh, they, They were constant in breaking the bread and prayers, just over and over again. Constant. Church, I think too many of us want verse 43, the fruit of verse 43, without the habits of verse 42. I think we want the fruit of the miracles. But if you're like me, so often you fight through an unwillingness to sow the seeds of sanctified habit. God wants to form a people for himself that are willingly engaged in not just the the fruit of miracles, but being formed by them into a people that is a miraculous people. That's what God desires to do with his people that gather. It's not just going to church. I have one point today, one big idea and that is this. As we unpack the rest of this my big idea is that there is formative power in habit. Now I'm going to go back through and teach these four things that verse 42 describes and I'll, I'll share with you how that plays out. But I'm going to spend a lot of time just nailing down this point further, that there is formative power in habit. And I'm going to give a lot of examples here on this one point. There's formative power in habit. Uh, imagine a little fishbowl. There's a, there's a fish in a fishbowl with a view of the bay. And in the bay, there's these two other little fish that that roll up, and the fish in the fishbowl calls out to these fish and says, hey, how's the water down there? And the two fish in the bay just kind of look at the fish in the fishbowl, kind of funny, and swim swim away. And one of the fish, as he's swimming away in the bay, says to the other, other fish, says, what the heck is water? What the heck is water? You see, he'd grown used to the water he swims in, and like that, our habits are things that we just swim around with and most often we're totally unaware of. And yet, despite being unaware of them, they control us, form us, and determine our direction and where we go. I honestly wonder if the word habit and the word habitat, if there's a reason why they're really similar etymologically. Our habitat is really bound up and produced by our daily habits that we may or may not see. And so maybe we swim around in our own little environments and every once in a while we'll be kind of low-key aware of them and we'll say like the fish, well, what the heck is water? Right? Like, what the heck is consumerism? What the heck is stifling anxiety that I'm so prone to calling responsibility and safety? What the heck is codependency on unhealthy relationships? I don't even notice it. They're just habits that have become ingrained in me. What, is, what the heck is hyperactivism? always having to do this or that. What is career idolatry? Or or on the other hand, what the heck is generosity? Or, Or mercy? Or evangelism? You see, whether it's good or bad, our habits are powerful habitats of formation that form us and shape us, whether we're aware of it cognitively or not. In fact, in his book, You are what you love. The spiritual power of habit is the subtitle. James K.A. Smith describes our habits as immersions that we swim in. That we can either form us in God's image, our habits do, or they form us in the debased and carnal image of our culture. Uh, Can you bring that picture of that book up one more time? Um, I'm having some leaders in our church read through this with me. But I... I highly encourage this book. I'm going to read a quote from it right now. Smith says that our loves acquire direction and orientation because we are immersed over time in practices and rituals that effectively and viscerally train our desires. So just as our habits themselves are unconscious, operating under the hood, as it were, It is also the case for the process of habituation that can be unconscious and covert. Habits are not just things that we do, but things that do something to us. And he goes on to warn us, we need to become aware of our habitual immersions. There is formative power in habit. Now, again, I say formative, because, as Smith says here, is, habits aren 't just things we do, but things that do things to us deeply, spiritually, religiously, even even our habits of shopping i 'm going to read another give you another example from this book. Uh, there 's a recent study by neuroscientists published in Digital Trends Periodical that demonstrates that loyal or devoted people to the Apple company um, that you, you've heard of brand loyalty. Some people are calling it brand devotion. Uh, they said that people that are uh, devoted to these products, the, the periodical calls us members of the Apple cult. This is not a religious article. It says that we're getting triggers in our brains when we respond to Apple products, there are similar triggers that are triggered in brains to people of religious faith when they're exposed to religious imagery. That kind of made me sick when I read it for the first time. See, habits aren't just things that we do. They're doing something profound to us in how we worship whatever we worship. The more that you see it and you become aware of the habits you're immersed in, you'll see that it's a religious and a, a spiritual experience more often than not. And let me just warn you, the Holy Spirit is not the only spirit that is vying for your devotion. We don't have to be paranoid about that. But at least we can be as as Smith says here, aware of of our immersions, to not let our guard down. We're creatures of habit. Here's the last example of the formative power of habit. Almost two decades ago, uh, I was invited to church in East LA by my uh, janitor, and uh, thank God he never told me that. You know, here's how we roll, um, in uh, with with El Salvadorians. We, Church is two services and three meals over an 11-hour period. Uh, I, he never told me that. Uh, so f- for 11 hours, I was like, immersed in this environment that was so foreign to me. And when I had my first pupusa, I was like, all right, whatever I got to learn for this language to keep eating these things, I going to do. <laughs> the first few years of learning Spanish, I had to conscientiously think, what is this word? Como se dice esto, or whatever. I had to think about it slowly it got into my habits and my thinking and uh, the, the more I would travel and connect with people in our in our Every Nation family the less I thought about it and it became ingrained in my mind but it doesn't stop there because I, I didn't just stop thinking about Spanish when I grew in fluency it continued to speak to me and to form me the habits and the, and the the, the Spanish language and the people themselves became a new environment that I was immersed in. That's that's transformed who I am, and now I think differently about people and about the world. And I eat differently. Si no pica, no es rica. We like. Well, I guess there's no uh, continuity between the language and picante, but you know what I mean. Uh, spiciness of life has come upon me as a way of living and a way of thinking in formation it's changed how I dream. I started to have dreams in Spanish. And I say that to say that church, my my deep desire is that we as a people would be so deeply formed and shaped by the language of the king and the habits of his kingdom that we would take upon ourselves powerfully A collective dream that we would live for together, that that the very environment of our gathering would be a vision of heaven on earth that we participate in together more and more as we conquer the enemy through the love that we're being formed by habitually. That's my dream. There's formative power in this sort of habit so knowing this, let me unpack these four things. What are these habits, and how does that relate to how we gather and grow in this power of habit? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. First, let's consider the apostles' teaching. We planted this church almost 10 years ago. The first several years, I would say, I did not value the preached word of God as much as I do today. Uh, That's that's all changed partly because of of studying the Bible a little more. But I think back probably in the early days too, that uh, I wanted to say, oh, other things are a little bit more important than this, you know, because it's not that big of a deal, you know, preaching. A lot of that was just because I didn't really want to study and prepare for sermons. But there is power in the apostles' teaching, the preached word of God, that when we come together and we have a collective worship together through hearing the word of God, faith comes by hearing. That when we're together in our collective, in our mutual, in our communal hearing, that God forms a people for himself through the power of the word preached. I can't understand it, but I see the fruit of it. Uh, I By sitting under the preached word in in many of the churches I've grown up in, I've noticed, especially in a church like this, you'll notice what happens. And many of you, this is your story. That because of how God forms you through his word preached, growing together alongside others that are also growing under the love and authority and constraint and protection of his word, you start to become more similar to those that you are sitting in pews with together, even if their background and where they came from is completely opposite to yours. And look around this room. There are people in this room that you have almost nothing in common with but this, and yet you're more similar after years of, of sitting under the word of God. You're more similar to the people in this room so often than the people that you respectively grew up with in in your own respective homes. There's power in the preached word. They gathered together habitually for the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to it. To the apostles' teaching and number two, the fellowship. The word for fellowship is koinonia, koinonia. The original word that was used there, and it literally means just sharing It can mean sharing material goods when there 's a need, like we see in the context here but it it 's the same as having communion, union with other people that 's not just oh, we share the same place we go to on Sunday, but it speaks of the life that we're we 're sharing my my life is wrapped up in yours my. My victories are wrapped up in yours. Church, when we talk about growth groups, we're not just asking you to share a little bit more of your week's schedule. We're inviting you to share life with other people. We've said it before, discipleship is relationship. Now, relationships require a, a little bit of scheduling my time and sacrificing my time to meet another person in a certain place in a certain time. But a growth group is not the meeting. A growth group is a, is a people that are in relationship, first of all, with God, as we get together regularly and we seek out his word together and we grow in it as we study it together. And, and, and a relationship through praying for each other and sharing each other's burden. It's a habit... To have real true sharing and fellowship, whether you're going to growth groups or whatever. It's a habit to do that, that forms a certain thing in you. And look, it's also a habit to not go, which forms certain things in you as well. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to, number three, the breaking of bread. This is speaking about communion, uh, the Lord's table. Remember, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Why is that? Why do we have to do it in remembrance of him? Because we're so forgetful. Because throughout the week, we accumulate other memories and other thoughts. And, oh, I forgot to pay this bill or that happened. And, oh, I need to do that. And we need to unremember those things to be redeemed and redemptive people that can have better memories that are flowing through our experiences. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't even just say, think about this in remembrance of me. Think about that. He says, do this in remembrance of me. There's studies that have come out in the last several years that show that there is a intimate relationship between the cerebral cortex that's responsible for memory and then the other part of our brain that's responsible for processing the olfactory system, smell and taste. So what that means is that our memory is uniquely connected to our taste and our smell. And, and we all know this, right? When you, when you think of, uh, when you smell spiced cinnamon, right? You'll go back to certain holiday memories you have, right? Like, oh, I remember what I felt like there. It's deep in us. They're deeply connected. Uh, or pregnant women. In your first trimester, certain smells that, that you smell... And years later, after your pregnancy, you smell that thing, and you're like, oh, I can't go near that. Why? Because there is an intimate connection between our memory and, uh, and our, our, our senses, our smell and taste. And see, Jesus was thousands of years ahead of these amazing peer-reviewed studies when he said, do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus didn't want to just leave us with a thought to remember him by, but by a taste To remember him by. So that as we go through the weights and the things that we're we're shackled by so often, that we could be formed as a people that through habit are able to have his remembrance deeply ingrained in our pathways. By doing this in remembrance of him, we grow. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and finally to the the prayers. It says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. Now, can you you listen to podcasts on your own? Yeah. But there's something categorically different when we hear the apostles teaching together. Can you pray on your own? Yes. In fact, you're commanded to pray on your own. But there's something different about communal prayer when we pray together whether it's our prayer meetings, the first Sunday of every month at 5 p.m., uh, or, or any time we pray together in a growth group, there's a tendency when we pray on our own to pray about the big things that seem so big in our own lives. But when we gather with God's church to seek his kingdom out together, there's a tool he gives us to think beyond our own weights, things weighing us down. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I wanted to really have needs and names prayers in every growth group where every person in the circle in a growth group would pray for a need and they would also pray for a name of someone who's not in the circle, that they have an intention of inviting into a relationship and connecting to the church. And I remember at the time uh, for me to demand that every person in a growth group prayed like that seemed really kind of excessive, like, man, that's a lot to ask and then the more we did it over the years it just it not just became second nature but it it changed it's been changing us and you watch how this habit of praying for other people habitually changes how you see your neighborhood or your dorm room you don't see things the same we start to see god's kingdom in more, more places because we come together we devote ourselves to the prayers there's Formative power in these sorts of habits that not only produce miracles, but form a miraculous type of people. Now that said, I need to underline before I close that there's not only formative power in habit, there's, there's also deformative power in habit. L- let's go through this verse just real slowly and think about the opposite of verses 42 through 44 for doing the opposite of what it says? What happens to a people when we're not gathering together to hear the truth of God preached? What happens in us when that's not our habit, that, that we don't have a habit of making a real connection with other human lives that are also seeking him under the authority of his word? We're not having regular communion, that, that we empty ourselves regularly and we receive the sustenance of Christ. That we actually gather together to taste and see that the Lord is good. What happens in me when my prayers are not gathered and collected to a, a, a group of people that I'm growing with? And maybe the, the prayers that I have are more like, help when, when I need it. What happens to people? Let me tell you. What I don't think happens all too often is all. I don't think awe and reverence happen as much. And so maybe the, the, the culture I swim in is is anxiety or fear or worry, or worse yet, a more deceptive type of habitat that I'm in. Where where my greatest dream is not miracles and signs and wonders, it's more like, well, that next vacation. That's kind of the biggest thing in my mind. God bless vacations. But Jesus rose from the dead, and he's alive, seated at the right hand of God, and he's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we're here today to be formed in something greater than that. We're creatures of habit, and there's other habits that we're also battling against. I think about, uh, as I've been processing this, just thinking about the 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 habits we don't think about. Men, you can relate to this. Every man can. Uh, How we look at women, it's a habit. It's a habit. Whether we look at them wrongfully or lustfully, it's not just that marketing companies need us to look wrongly, but it's It's also something we swim in, and we're responsible as men for taking it into our gills, how we look at women wrongfully. Now, if you're a man in here and you say, oh, that's not a habit of mine, I don't struggle with how I look at women at all. Well, let me just tell you, come up to me after church, and let's do lunch together. And either you can minister to me, or I can cast that deceiving spirit out of you. Because this is something, this is a habit that all men fight Or recently, for me, it's been my habit that I'm responsible for as I put my kids to bed. Now, now it's hard in that moment not to be impatient, but I've just noticed how I've been formed through habit to be a type of dad that I did not plan on being. The habit of impatience forms something in me as a dad and them as kids. God, help me. Last habit I want to mention. Do you remember... Five or ten years ago, when a, you'd be sitting at lunch with a friend, they'd get up and go to the bathroom. Let's, let's say ten years ago. Do you remember what you would do in a moment like that? You'd think about things, maybe. Heck, if you're a Christian, maybe you'd pray. What kind of formative habits determine how we grow today? These little rectangles. Now, are these conscientious habits going after social media in the margins of our day? Did you ever decide, you know, today I've decided I'm going to become an insta-slave. No. It's just every little dopamine release, when I click on a new thing, when someone likes a new thing, forms something in me. And so what, what, form, what kind of people do we grow into? We grow into Robots that are incapacitated to pray and to seek God in those margins of our day, to really engage in redemptive relationship, what sort of people do we become? Let me tell you, we become a people that need the mercy of God to wash over us. There's good news in this, that Jesus died for our sin and he rose again from the dead and he sends his spirit to help us, but also he has provided for us long ago a better habit that we can tap into. Jess talked about this last week that we can confess our sin, and He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can make it a habit that swallows up these lesser habits by the power of the living God. We empty ourselves through confession, and we fill ourselves by going to Jesus and seeing the sustenance that He gives through faith at his table. I'm going to give some instructions about this in a second, but as we get our elementary school kids to participate in this last moment with us, I want to pray over you. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, I thank you that you have called us to be a sort of people that you want to form us to be a sort of person that none of our best effort can produce. The only way that we can be the type of people that you've called us to be is if we are to die, to take up our cross daily, and to follow you. So, Lord, I'm asking that you would help us all to do that. If you're in this room right now and you've never died to sin, you've never given Jesus your life and allowed him to inhabit you through his Holy Spirit and take over your life, make you born again. This is a moment where you can in faith say, Jesus, make me new. You can pray it in faith. You can say, Jesus, forgive me, make me new. And if you've already done that, you can also empty yourself through faith and receive of who he is in this moment. Would you stand to your feet with me?